Hello, and welcome to the Organizing for Change podcast. The goal of this podcast is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their communities. The host of the Organizing for Change podcast is the coalition coordinator for Avon, Massachusetts, Amanda Decker. Thank you for listening. Welcome to episode 16 of the Organizing for Change podcast, where our goal is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their community. I can't believe we have episode 16 already, and we have over 1,100 downloads, so thank you to everybody out there for listening and for sharing our podcast. Just a side note, um, for all those who live in the United States, we still don't have any listeners from North or South Dakota. South Carolina or Wyoming. So if you've got any friends that have coalitions or are just interested in creating change out in those states, please feel free to send our podcast along because it'd be really fun to say that we have all 50 states represented. Maybe we'll do something special like send out a prize or something like that when we get all 50 states uh, reached. So stay tuned for that. We'll think of some ideas. Anyway, I got the opportunity to sit down with Ryan Morgan. He's the principal of Independence Academy in Brockton, Massachusetts. Independence Academy is one of five recovery high schools located in Massachusetts, and it's jointly funded by the Department of Public Health and local school districts. So the school prides itself in meeting students where they're at with respect to their education and recovery. Independence Academy defines recovery as a process of change through which individuals improve their health and wellness, live self-directed lives, and strive to reach their full potential. So without further ado, listen in to this fascinating conversation with Principal Ryan Morgan. So welcome, Ryan. I'm here with Ryan Morgan, who is the Principal of Independence Academy over in Brockton, Massachusetts, our neighboring town, and Independence Academy is not just a regular high school. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about your school and just give us an overview of what you do? Sure. Thank you for having me, Amanda. I'm, I'm happy to be here and certainly happy to, to share uh, some of the insight that I've gained as the principal of Independence Academy over the past few years and um, to share what we do and, and the nature of our school and, um, you know, kind of the things that we're seeing with adolescents, especially around, um, you know, substance use and, and the struggles that they have. Our school is, uh, you know, a, a, a public high school that's designed really to work with kids who struggle with addiction. So all of the students who attend our school, the common, um, the one common factor that they all possess is that they all are diagnosed with a substance use disorder. Um, so students come to us uh, to either finish their high school uh, in a place that is more equipped to deal with uh, their struggles with addiction. Um, a lot of times they're co-occurring mental health issues and, um, and trauma history. And also, I think maybe more importantly, to surround themselves with, um, with other peers who are kind of in the same boat in terms of looking to make some changes around their substance use. So um, a lot of times when students are coming out of inpatient treatment, um, they feel like if they go back to their traditional high school or their ascending high school, their public high school, that they're going to go back to a lot of the same people, places, and things that, um, that led to their use um, and 
you know, matriculation into being diagnosed with a substance use disorder. So they feel like their best uh, bet to kind of, you know, continue on their path of recovery and um, and hopefully abstinence around substance use mm-hmm. is an environment that really understands them as people and has the resources and expertise to kind of address substance use and you know everything that goes along with that so it's amazing to me that we have a public high school that's dedicated to recovery how did that even come about well it was a model that that started um in minnesota and there was another um school that started in uh, maryland actually and um and then in texas a few had popped up so and that was back in probably the 70s that that schools were starting and um they were you know i think there was a lot of substance use back in the 70s everybody always you know uses that as you know i was a child of the 70s or a product of the 70s so i think there was a lot of social uh and recreational substance use during that time and uh people started to you know kids started to kind of really struggle with with um you know graduated substances you know lsd and um, cocaine and heroin at that point and so uh, they started these schools that were really small programs that were in basements of buildings and you know working with a counselor that that um, you know was able to kind of address some of these issues with kids um, so it really kind of started there but obviously didn't really catch much traction until uh, nation nationally didn't really uh, catch much traction until probably I would say the early 2000s and the schools of Massachusetts um, were publicly funded by the state in 2007 and so Massachusetts really has the only model that is funded by state dollars um, there's a school that just opened in in Las Vegas actually that um, has a similar kind of funding structure but we are really the only state that has public high schools most of them there are some that are charter schools that are public charter schools but um, there's uh, even with some of those there's some tuition and things associated with that but um, Massachusetts has certainly been on the I think the forefront on, in terms of trying to come up with you know different ways to combat the the opioid epidemic mm-hmm. in, in general um, and so they've you know the state legislature's been um, you know supportive of these kinds of schools so um, we've grown and over since 2007 they opened three uh, one in Boston Ostagai High one in Beverly, um, just North Shore Recovery High School, and one in uh, Springfield Liberty Prep Academy. And then we came online at Independence Academy in 2012, mm-hmm. and then uh, the Worcester Recovery School opened up in um, 2016. So, um, And we're trying to get a sixth one open for next year, too. Wow. Hopefully in an underserved region like the Cape yeah. or maybe out in Northwestern Mass. So. so if a young person wants to go to this school, what, what do they need to do? Um, they just really contact the school and just you know express the interest and then we reach out to them uh, and their family a lot of times um, some of the students who are interested in attending our school uh, you know need not us to meet them halfway but need us to kind of you know go a little bit further than they're willing or able to go um, just based on home circumstances and things like that so as soon as we hear that a student's interested whether it's through them or through a treatment facility or through a school you know we really kind of uh, approach the family and just make them aware of what we do uh, we certainly don't put any pressure on anybody but um they come for a tour and we explain to them pretty much what I'm explaining to you that you know we really try to get to the nuts and bolts of um, 
of why they're using substances. All right, so tell us what are some of the successes and highlights? Um, so our successes we see on a daily basis. And, um, you know, I think one of the more frequent questions we get asked because people want to know what's our success rate. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I think that the question is answered in so many different ways with people in our field because, you know, I don't, I think a lot of times people want to know what's your success rate? How many kids do you take in and keep sober and graduate from high school and go live this magical life that's, you know, four year college degree and, you know, white picket fence and, you know, you know, I think the the measure of our success is really um, when kids walk into our school every day, they're met with respect and um, and feelings of hope and a staff that's just willing to do whatever it takes uh, that day to um, to meet the student where they're at and to uh, help them um, identify the resources that they need and, and get through school and get their education, but you know also help them in their recovery. And so I always say our success rate is 100% because we, 100% of the time, um, when someone calls us, we answer the phone. When someone asks us for help, we give it to them. And, um, you know, anytime that a student or a family is in a crisis, we always say that, that people come to us in their most vulnerable, um, you know, in, in their most vulnerable times. People kind of walk through our door and uh, we're there 100% of the time to give them a place that um, that they can uh, know that, that we're going to give them that little piece of hope that allows them to uh, start on the road to recovery. And, um, you know, some of our biggest uh, celebrations and successes, like I said, on a daily basis are just kids coming in who live really tough, tough lives, uh, writing a song uh, that really gets to a lot of that emotion. Um, so instead of, you know, using substances to, to kind of numb that stuff out or drown that stuff out or, you know, ex- just forget about that stuff for a while. They use music and songs and art and, um, you know, self-expressive kind of activities to, um, you know, to really deal with some of that pain that's that's kind of deep-rooted within them. And, um, you know, we really try to turn them on to things like that. So, you know, those are our daily successes we see that stuff on a daily basis you know um, kids working on stuff like that more positive coping skills so how did you in particular get involved with um, the high school in the first place so I I've been in the field of education now for 18 years which seems like a long time but um, and I've always gravitated towards high-risk kids and so I started um, I have a my undergraduate degrees in mental health and my graduate degrees in counseling and so um, I was a math teacher and uh, when I first started uh, teaching in schools I was a math teacher and um, I gravitated towards the kids who really struggled and um, then I I got a job as a counselor as I finished graduate school and you know I felt like I really wanted to help the kids who the system was failing you know and so I tried to create and work in programs that allowed me to do that that work outside of the box in a sense uh, and then uh, you know I just I was an administrator in a couple of different roles um, and always just gravitated towards the high-risk population I worked in all you know alternative programs and um, I ran night school programs and um, and then this opportunity was presented to me and it was just like a perfect next step for me it was a real heavy emphasis on high-risk kids but um, you know a really particular population in those kids who were diagnosed with substance use disorders so um, 
that's how I that's how I kind of got involved here, and this is the best job I've ever had, to be honest with you. It's, yeah, it's great. Tell me one of your rewarding stories. Just something that just really. I think probably the, the the most rewarding experience for me, I'll have to say, is um, is graduation every year, and and it's. I think there's so many stories just because I've seen now hundreds of kids since I've, since I've been at Independence Academy. Uh, in four years, we've um, you know we've we'll serve you know probably 55 students this year. We we served um, I think just about 50 last year. I think it was just under 50 last year, and um, you know in the two years prior to that, it was probably 40. So you know we've we've really seen quite a few kids and. You know, it's a high school, and so our job is to get these kids their diploma and and yeah. um, you know give them the place to be. And so at graduation every year, you know, to see these kids who who really uh, at times probably felt like high school graduation was not even an option anymore. You know, and and they're thinking about alternative routes or not even thinking about alternative routes. But you know, to see kids achieve that milestone is um, it's a really moving experience. I think our graduation every year. I don't think there's a dry eye in the house. And um, is it open to the it's open. Oh yeah, anybody can go. It's May thirtieth yeah. this year, at uh, at our school in Brockton. Um, and it's uh, it is really an amazing experience. And um, I think what makes it so amazing is the story that's behind each one of the kids who graduates. It's not a a graduation of four hundred kids. It's a graduation of about six or eight kids, and um, they all have a unique and individual story that that comes out in the graduation and. It really is something that sticks with you for months afterwards, and it just it just keeps propelling you forward to, to, to inspire you to keep doing this kind of work. So, yeah. But on a daily basis, again, I mean, there's so many little things that go on. You know, even we, you know, kids are in and out of treatment. Even when they're with us, uh, kids are in and out of treatment. It's just the nature of adolescent substance use. You know, yeah. it's not a, it's not a, you know, straight line from from use to recovery for anybody most of the time and certainly not for adolescents and so even just getting a kid into treatment you know convincing them that it's the best thing for them and working with the parent and knowing that that kid's you know going to go do some good work and you know really get some help you know that's a huge win for us so you know even a student we had last night you know signed into treatment on their own and um you know i talked to their mom this morning and um it's just such a huge win and it's such a huge success and um and then when they come out and they come back and they're greeted by, you know, the kids at the school welcome back and they've missed them and all that stuff. I mean, that's just the reason why we're doing this work is to keep these kids surrounded by people who understand them and know them. And it's, again, going back to those protective factors, it's it's creating those peer relationships, those positive peer relationships. That's what keeps kids moving in the right direction mm-hmm. is, is facilitating that. And so those are daily wins for us. Yeah. Have there been any changes that you've noticed over the years or trends or just different things that have really changed since you started and now? With respect to use? With use or just maybe just how young people have changed over the last few years? Yeah, um, so, uh, I mean, as far as like the population that, that we're seeing, we're, we've, we're growing, our school in particular is, is growing, um, you know, at a at a pretty good rate and um, four years ago when I got there I think there were eight students and, and there were probably ten staff members and so on some days you know depending on attendance and kids and treatment we'd have two kids and ten adults <laughs> staring at them and you know yeah it was it was awkward and uncomfortable and all that but you know we've got 35 now with six referrals and um, and it's certainly busy 
I would say that um, you know we're we're starting to see more complex issues, um, especially because I think marijuana is is certainly you know becoming a an extremely uh, accessible substance that um, that kids are perceiving as um, not harmless, maybe, but not very harmful. And so, um, one thing that that we've struggled with uh, recently is is trying to get kids to understand that you know it's not just weed. You know, they they always say, well, it's just weed. And we ask them if they're using, you know, when they're interviewing or something, they say, no, you know, I'm not using, well, I'm, you know, I'm just using weed, but I'm not using anything else. Like it's no big deal. And, um, I think that's been a hard, a hard thing for us over the past four years is to, to try to keep up with, uh, in Massachusetts here, the legalization and, um, kind of the, the medical use of, of marijuana and, and, um, you know, the perception that if it's medical and if it's, you know, legal, then it must not be harmful. And, um, you know, when you're 15, it's harmful, uh, especially at the level that we see some kids using it. Um, when you're 50 or 40 or whatever, you know, and you're using it recreationally, you know, who knows? I, you know, I guess the jury's out uh, as to whether or not it's harmful, but it's certainly not harmless for a 15-year-old kid who's, you know, got a lot of um, risk factors and certainly is starting to find, you know, marijuana as, a, as an outlet. So, We've seen a lot of differences there. Do you tend to see kids um, smoking marijuana? Or are they using electronic devices? Is there, you know, what what's the method that they use generally to consume? I would say we've seen a significant increase in the use of dab pens, and mm-hmm. so. Um, Can you tell me even what a dab pen is? Sure. So it's a it's a um, it's a vape or you know a. I guess it's an electronic cigarette, if that's what they call them, e-cigarettes. But it's a vape. It's a it's a graduated vape. I would say that has or uses a THC oil. So um, they they put instead of like a tobacco oil in there, um, they use THC oil, which they can they can buy higher concentrated THC oils. So um, uh, you know the newness of this, I guess, has me kind of like still learning. But um, you know we we find cards and things like that on kids that say you know 500 milligrams strongest available potency and things like that and and um you know kids are using these dab pens which is really in many ways odorless it's smokeless and so it's very hard to detect if if somebody's using one of these things so you know i think probably five years ago if somebody was going to smoke marijuana um they would probably smell and they wouldn't be able to do it discreetly now, um, you know, there's kids doing this stuff. We talk to schools around us. Kids are doing it in classrooms, at school, in the bathroom, and there's no smell. And, um, you know, I think every school and every community is seeing that. I talk to school administrators all over the place that it's the biggest issue that they're facing now is the, um, the, the consumption of, of cannabis through dab pens, which, you know, dabs are the kind of the street term for um, THC oil or it's like a wax. Um, you know, that's kind of turned into an oil. So, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of that. And, and what we've seen over the past couple of years is uh, we do a lot of, we do random drug screening at our school. And, and so we, um, one way to confirm whether a student is continuing to use or reducing their use or increasing their use is by checking the level of concentration of uh, THC in their in their urine, in their system. And so, um, just a few years ago, we had a student who 
was really in a tough place, uh, a lot going on outside of school, was struggling big time, using lots of different substances. And I remember we tested him and, you know, he was coming back for multiple substances, Xanax, marijuana, um, Molly, and cocaine, things like that, marijuana for sure. Um, and we tested his level and it was 3,000, some, you know, 3,000 and over 3,000, I think. And we were shocked that, you know, we would typically see in levels like 400, 500, you know, I think 800 was something that was really concerning to us and not being a medical professional, I'm not sure what 800 means or 400 means, but it helps you kind of build a, uh, a framework around what's high and what's kind of working its way out of the system. We test kids and get 16 or 20, 70. Um, so over the past few years, we, we saw this kid, you know, a couple of years ago at 3,000 and we, we almost rushed him out of the school into an ambulance because it was no way that somebody could have a marijuana level that high. This year, um, we see kids consistently testing at 3,000 and we've seen kids testing over 5,000. Um, and so what that says to me is that they're either using things like dab pens um, or uh, edibles, which are um, kind of producing a higher concentration of THC in their bloodstream or in their system, um, which then translates into higher screens in, in the urine tests, um, or they are using in school and or they use before they come to school. But, you know, with with a, a dab pen, they may, you know, we don't know because we can't smell it. And, you know, we it, it's not like we can smell it on them. So, um, you know, we question whether or not these kids are under the influence when we're testing them because their levels are so high that we we're not really sure. So anytime we see something like that, it's an immediate you know response from the school of sending a kid to treatment or something like that. Mm -hmm. And what does a typical, typical treatment look like for a young person? Unfortunately, it's the typical treatment in Massachusetts. There's you know a couple of, of options uh, as far as like state-run facilities that will take insurance for adolescents, and you know it's typically a two-week stint in a in a detox, and you know kids will give us a hard time you know a lot saying you know, detox from weed or, and, you know, the answer is yes, you know, detox from weed. There is, there are withdrawal symptoms when you, when you detox from marijuana and, um, it, you don't have the same obvious withdrawals from a benzo or from alcohol or from, you know, an opiate, but, um, you know, you, things like headaches and sleeplessness and anxiety, heightened anxiety. A lot of kids use marijuana to combat anxiety. Um, so when they stop using marijuana, they're now met with increased levels of anxiety, um, so yeah, they detox from you know marijuana or whatever they're using for two weeks, um, you know at a stabilization, and sometimes they they go on to longer term treatment, which is three months. Uh, there's a, again a couple of places in the state that do that for adolescents, but um, then you know after that they they hopefully transition back to the recovery high school or um, you know to a place that that continues to help facilitate that recovery process. But um, there's really nothing um, in between that so unfortunately I think in Massachusetts and probably in most places your options are uh, outpatient you know psychotherapy with maybe somebody who has some experience with substance use or maybe no experience with substance use and maybe they take your insurance and maybe not and maybe it's the right fit but you know there's that or there's inpatient detox and so when you present an option to parents you know if I'm a, a parent of a 14 year old who maybe has a, an issue with marijuana and somebody presents the the option of going to inpatient you know detox 
uh, in Worcester, you know, which is maybe from us is, is maybe an hour away or something, you know, it seems like a crazy thought. And I think especially with the opioid epidemic in the state of Massachusetts, you know, you're thinking, you know, my son's 14 and he's struggling with marijuana. It's just weed. It's not that harmful. I'm going to put him into inpatient detox an hour away with people who are probably using all sorts of opioids and, and things like that. And um, it's just not the case. But uh, so I think you see a lot of people who are fearful to make that jump because it's such a big step. But that's pretty much what um, what treatment looks like in the state of Massachusetts. So there's a couple of longer term things. There's a Cushing House in Boston, which is a six month program, um, you know, which, you know, we certainly have had a lot of students go there and, and be successful. But, you know, the reality is when you leave treatment, you go back to reality and the, the world that you're surrounded by. So, um, you know, I, I think that's where recovery high schools can kind of step in and, and fill a, a big piece of that continuum. Would you say most kids uh, come because they're struggling with marijuana or do you think there's other things? Uh, you, most of the kids that we have struggle with marijuana. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the number one, um, you know, drug that we see that kids are really struggling with is marijuana. And I think people uh, are kind of taken aback a little bit sure. when, when they hear that. Um, we definitely have kids who struggle with multiple sub substances and, and have had a history of using really dangerous substances and who have, um, you know, multiple overdoses and, um, you know, have been uh, narcan you know, multiple times and, mm -hmm. you know, are, are putting themselves in, in extremely dangerous situations, you know, using other substances, again, opiates, um, intravenous heroin use, uh, fentanyl, you know, we see, we see all that, but um, it's really the minority. And if you look at the you know we're we're part of Plymouth County, and if you look at the the overdose statistics for Plymouth County, the demographic of the zero to nineteen year old kids in in our county um, it really only counts for like two to three percent of of um, overdose deaths, and so it's not typical that that high school age kids are overdosing on opiates. Um, the the next demographic of twenty to twenty nine is up about thirty two to thirty three percent, and so it's a huge jump, and so. Um, all those people who are struggling at 20 to 29 probably as the research and statistics kind of show us that they probably started using at 11 and 12 which is when our kids start using so they start using other substances like marijuana over-the-counter cough medicine prescription Adderall Xanax things that again it's easily accessible for them um, and you know my opinion is that they don't find their way to a place that kind of helps them address why they're using and helps to build protective factors right. and so they just kind of continue to use and use and use and then they're 20 they're no longer in a school where people are are you know watching them and seeing them on a daily basis and and they start to just kind of you know continue to fall further into um you know their use so that must be no that must be real eye-opener to a lot of people too because i know when i go out and speak to people in the community they always want to talk about the opiate yeah. epidemic, which is very real. Yeah. But I think it's important to talk about prevention and where did the opiate epidemic start? Yeah. You know, let's go upstream and find yeah. out what started um, and just some of the things that, like marijuana, are really eye-opening for people to understand that there's a connect between that yeah and the uh, addiction epidemic that we're, we're struggling with right now yeah and I you know maybe controversially I you know I I don't say that marijuana is a gateway drug I I I really don't I think using marijuana at a at 11 or 12 or 13 
is a gateway behavior and, and there's an officer from uh, West Bridgewater who I, I uh, credit with that quote. Um, you know, it, if a student is using marijuana when they're in high school or middle school, I don't necessarily that mean, means I don't necessarily think that, that means that, that they're going to be using heroin in just a matter of time. Right. Um, you know, I think what it says is if I'm 12 and I'm using marijuana, that's that's a red flag behavior. Why is a student using substances already? It's not, you know, it, it goes back to the legalization too. And, and again, maybe in a controversial way, I'm the principal of a recovery high school. I'm not against the legalization of marijuana. I'm not, I'm not one that says that everybody should be able to use marijuana either. I just think that we have a problem on our hands before even legalization was here. You know, um, Xanax is certainly a legal substance. Um, and we see kids struggling with that all the time. I, for me, it doesn't matter if it's if it's legal or not. It's there's risk factors that we have to pay attention to. And when 11 year olds and 12 year olds, and I keep saying those terms because those numbers, because that's what we see when we pull kids in. We ask them what was their age of first use. It's usually 11 to 12. Gotcha. When 11 to 12 year old is using any substance, whether it's marijuana or cough medicine or alcohol or something like that, that's a, a significant red flag. And then when you look at that student and they possess. You know, particular risk factors, whether it's substance use in the home, um, abuse in the home, mental health issues in the home, you know, divorce and separation and things like that, or you know, whatever it is that you, we need to start connecting those pieces. Mm -hmm. That it's not the drug really that we need to pay attention to. It's all the behavior and the, the risk factors that are all you know connected. And so, um, I think the opioid epidemic is definitely real. I see it uh, on on a daily basis. But I think it could be one of the worst things that's really happened to adolescent substance use because it's got everybody, like you said, almost looking upstream at, at uh, all these people who, you know, I'll use like the Desmond Tutu quote, are upriver, you know, that are in the stream, that fell in the stream, that are drowning in opioid addiction, that are, we're trying to, you know, through all these initiatives and, and um, you know, treatment models, we're trying to help people struggling with opioid addiction. We need to go upstream and, and figure out why these kids are first falling in the stream. And, and that's, you know, 11, 12, 13, you, you start looking at um, the profile of these people who are struggling with opioids and you can start piecing it together. And um, and don't get me wrong, we have a number of kids who have great homes and great families and strong, um, you know, support networks at home. And so those, those people are certainly out there. But I would say most of the kids, when you talk to them, start using at a young age. Yeah. There's risk factors that are present that are um, that are there. So, one of my friends always uses this quote. She says, "A healthy fish in a polluted pond is so yeah. get sick." Yeah. And like, so true. Yep. Um, it is. Well, this has been great. I think I could talk for like another hour and listen and um, you know hear more about. It. I I hope we have you back on the podcast in the future to continue like talking because usually we're about like 25 minutes. So I know we've gone over that already, but um, just to kind of like. You know, maybe have you on once a year or something like that. Yeah, I'd love to. And I appreciate you taking the time because I think, um, you know, just, again, the the opioid epidemic is real and it needs to be paid yeah. attention to. But I think it it's a lot of times it overshadows where a lot of this stuff is starting. So I appreciate the work you're doing and trying to raise awareness through prevention efforts. And, yeah. you know, Avon Aces, um, you know, I know you guys are always out in the communities trying to raise awareness. And so I appreciate that and um, anything we can do to help in the future, whether it's be part of the podcast or part of anything that you guys put together. I know we've collaborated in the past, so we're certainly more than happy to do that, you know, moving forward. So I appreciate the opportunity. 
For more information from today's podcast, check out our show notes. There you can find our contact information, social media, and website. Please get in touch with us if you have any comments or questions. And if you like today's podcast, please share it with your friends. Thanks for listening.